I think for too long, Plath was sort of accused of, of being apolitical, non-political, and, and especially if you compare her to someone like Rich. But, you know, I think just, just writing itself was a political act for Plath when um, she was being pressured. Um, there was enormous societal pressure to, to not write. Thank you for joining the program today. I'm Lily Rowe, the Community Outreach Archivist at Emory University Libraries, Stuart A. Rose Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library. And you are listening to Rose Library Presents Community Conversations, a series of interviews with people connected to our collections. This episode features poet David Trinidad in discussion with scholar Heather Clark, author of Red Comet, The Short Life and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath. Hello, I'm David Trinidad, a poet and professor in the English and Creative Writing Department at Columbia College in Chicago, and I'm here with Heather Clark, who is the author of the Ulster Renaissance, Poetry in Belfast, 1962-1972, and The Grief of Influence, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, and is a professor of contemporary poetry at the University of Huddersfield in West Yorkshire, England. We're here to talk about her most recent book, Red Comet, The Short Life and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath, which is undeniably the most detailed and comprehensive biography of the poet and novelist Sylvia Plath to date. Hello, Heather. Hi, David. It's nice to see you in person. <laughs> I guess we should we should note that it's February 11th. Yes. A, a very significant date. Um in Sylvia Plath's life, of course, uh, her death date, yes. right? We're also, even though we're in different places, we're also, so to speak, at Emory University. So I, I thought we could uh, start by talking about the research you conducted at the Rose Library. I, I assume you started by looking at material in the Ted Hughes papers? Yes. I I mean, the, the whole reason I got interested, I think, in, in Ted Hughes was, uh, it had to do with my first research stint at Emory when I was um, writing my book about the Irish poets. I was actually in the reading room uh, at the Rose Library when the Ted Hughes paper started coming in. So I was, I was sitting physically in the reading room and I remember people pushing carts full of <laughs> boxes and, and uh, you know, everyone was, was buzzing about this. And I said, oh, what's that? You know, it's a Ted Hughes papers. And I just remember watching those carts wheel by and, uh, and I thought, what is in those boxes? And, and I, I, had, I had taught a class on um, Sylvia Plath while I was a graduate student at Oxford, I should say I taught tutorials, not a class. And uh, so that had, had really, I had become very interested in Plath sort of due to that experience of being deeply immersed in her work and, and teaching it to undergraduates. And, and so when I saw all of the Ted Hughes papers come in, uh, I was teaching Plath at the time. And yes, I was working on a book about Irish poets, but I was interested in this idea of literary collaboration and, and partnerships and how poets influence each other. And I just thought, there's my next book. 
uh, <laughs> when I saw those Hughes papers come in. So, so yes, it, it was, um, the Hughes collection is sort of what I, what I came to first when I was researching my second book, The Grief of Influence. And I, I spent a lot of time at Emory, uh, for that second book as well. And also the, the books in their library were very helpful. I remember um, going through those. And there are, there are plath materials at Emory too. The, the most exciting uh, <laughs> addition regarding plath um, to the Emory archive is, is the Rosenstein files, right? Which, right. which I, I uh, drew from uh, last year. Should we say um, who Harriet Rosenstein is and, and what that archive entails? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So she was a Plath biographer or aspiring Plath biographer uh, who began her biography, I believe, in the early 70s and, and never finished. But she amassed a really impressive archive. I, I'm, I'm kind of blown away by the quality of her research, especially in the age before the Internet. I mean, she really tracked people down. She tracked down people who had uh, lived in Sylvia Plath's father's dorm, right, during <laughs> graduate school and things like that. So they're all and, – and so that, she shed a lot of light on, on Otto Plath for me, especially because – all, there were all these letters from men who were in their 70s and 80s even then talking about their friendship with Otto. But not just that, um, lots of new uh, interviews, well, new as in no one had ever read them before. Uh, they had been performed in the early 70s, right, when memories were much fresher. I guess it was also before Plath had become such a legend, maybe. And I, I felt like there some people were I guess more honest about her. I thought there were there were some nastier comments in some of these interviews uh, than than I had expected. Um, and then, of course, interviews with her class psych- psychiatrist and her final doctor, Doctor Horter, that I thought shed new light on her her medical treatment and things like that. So I, I thought that this this archive full of interviews um, with Plath's contemporaries dating from the 1970s it was really a, a treasure trove. What were some of the biggest finds in the Rosenstein collection or surprises? You know, I think for me, it, it was the uh, the interviews with Dr. Ruth Boischer and Dr. Horder, because that sort of allowed me to put some more of the pieces of the puzzle together, especially Dr. Horder's recollection um, about the the hospital that he was trying to get Plath into at the end of her life and and his memory of some of the drugs that she was taking and and uh and also you know Dr Dr Boischer's methods um in terms of this this sort of quasi talk therapy that that she was doing with Plath and we need to at least consider the possibility that some of the treatments um that the Plath underwent for her depression may have made her depression worse um, and I certainly think that was the case with that first set of electroshock treatments at um, Valley Head, which which we all know were misadministered. And Plath herself said that these were very traumatic for her. And and so so just you know, reading more about about the medical details, I guess I, I sort of confirmed that for me more. I mean, as much as it can ever be confirmed, we'll never know. And also Plath's last letter to her psychiatrist where she talked about her um, terror of, of 
going into a mental hospital again and, and lobotomies. And she used the word lobotomies and, and mental hospital. And so just that fear of being institutionalized again. Um, so that, that last letter, so that was another, again, for me, um, really important piece of, of evidence, documentary evidence. And that, that was a relatively new discovery as well, right? That was only published in 2018. And you point out in your book how she was scheduled to go into the hospital the morning of February 11th. It was not going to be McLean, right? It was not going to be, um, she wasn't going to be picked up in a limousine. <laughs> and there wasn't going to be all of Higgins' party, you know, paying all the bills. And this was an, a very unknown thing. This was an unknown place where she would be going to. She didn't know the doctors. She wasn't necessarily going to have a woman psychiatrist. Um, she seemed to, you know, want, want to be the patient of a woman rather than a man. So there were, I think, you know, there were so many unknowns there. And, and so, so those details in the Rosenstein file, um, for me kind of, I don't know, helped me put it together a bit. And you know, you're able in your book to um, to give a very detailed account of her last weeks in London, and you know up until now that all of that information was pretty much a mystery, and there was so much we didn't know about those last weeks of her life, and um, and now we do, which is wonderful. You know? Yeah, that that was another uh, reason that I, I felt like it was a, a worthwhile <laughs> project, you know, writing yet another biography of Sylvia Plath, because we did have so much new information, especially in the Ted Hughes archives, um, which, which I, I thought when I started the book almost 10 years ago now, I, I felt that there was a lot more to be mined in the British Library, Ted Hughes archive, and, you know, as well as the Emory archive, but especially the, the British Library. Um, because there were all of these journals, handwritten journals that were in there. And, <laughs> and there were some pretty, pretty amazing journal entries regarding that last week, which, um, which were quite, yeah, I thought quite revelatory. So now, now we do have a timeline. We have more of a timeline, yeah. I mean, in as much as any of this can really ever be known, right? And that's, that's the thing that as a biographer that I just is so different from writing literary criticism, right? Just, just the factual and chronological, um, these necessities to get these, get these facts right. And, uh, as much as, as much as we can know, yeah, it's tough. It's, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I wanted to ask you, I mean, there's so much information. I mean, Plath herself was such a documenter, right? Of her, of her, almost her every action, her yes, every activity. Yes. And you know, and there are the letters and the journals and even her creative work. And then what so many other people have said and written about her, like as a biographer, how, I mean, that was a massive amount of information. And so what was that like to, you know, <laughs> yeah. you said it took you about 10 yeah, years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I signed, really I signed the contract in January of 2012. Uh, I had started it the year before. So, you know, I had a pretty decent sized proposal to send out. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I worked on it for, at least, it took about seven years to get, I think, a first draft and then another two years of revision and editing and proofreading and all of that. I, I felt like I had a pretty good critical foundation um, from the second book, the, the Grief of Influence. That sort of gave me this confidence to, uh, <laughs> to tackle what is a, a very intimidating subject. 
And um, so I did sort of research and write at the same time. And I did it chronologically. I mean, I wish I could tell you something really interesting about my method, <laughs> but I just you know started at the beginning and finished at the end. And yeah, distilling thousands and thousands of pages into one narrative was, was extremely difficult. And, and the manuscript was, originally it was about 16 or 1700 double-spaced pages in Microsoft Word. And the book is over a thousand. The book is over a thousand with footnotes or endnotes, yeah. And my editor really helped me cut it down. Um, we took out a lot from the first half. And uh, so she she wanted to get it under a thousand pages, which it is without the notes. <laughs> um, but, you know, I guess I just felt like there are a lot of biographies of Plath. Most of them max out at around 400 pages, which is fine, right? I'm not, I, I, I really enjoy reading biographies of that length, but I just sort of felt like, well, this is one this is something that we don't have yet of, of Sylvia Plath. You know, we don't have the 700, 800 page kind of long literary biography and the, of the style right, that Hermione Lee writes, that kind of tome. <laughs> and so the, as I was writing along, I mean, I was writing in this fairly detailed way and I just, I just thought, why don't I tell as, as full a story as I can? you know, and uh, especially given the, all of the new material. And I was really lucky that, that I had an editor who gave me the time and the space to do that. Well, as I understand, the Rosenstein collection became available towards the end of your pro the process of writing the book, right? Yes. So you have to go back and incorporate this new information into what you'd already written. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I did. And I had to sort of... Uh, beg for more time <laughs> from Knopf because they they were ready to go with production schedule uh and I really I said I, I've, I've got to include this information I can't even imagine publishing this book without it and I've, I've come so far you know I just need one more month and and so they they allowed me to take that extra time and then they pushed the the publication date back it was supposed to come out in during the summer and then it ended up coming out in October but um, again, very grateful for that because uh, the those those papers I think really added a lot, and and even just the um, the anecdotes Sylvia Plath's friends told, right? That that I had never heard before. Um, they they sort of brought her to life in a in a way that. Um, that some of that the the interviews I had been doing one on one uh, didn't necessarily. There was something really fresh about reading the the interviews on the Rosenstein archive. Yeah. Do any details stand out? It was fun reading about you know Harold Bloom and Ted Hughes at the Anchor Pub, and Bloom kind of lecturing Hughes about. <laughs> trying to be less lazy and being more organized and they're all, they're all drinking Guinness and, and uh, kind of these um, scene setting uh, moments. And um, one of Plath's Smith roommates, you know, talking about Plath as a, as a bridesmaid at her wedding and, and uh, what went on there and Plath sort of having too much to drink and, and <laughs> just these 
these anecdotes that kind of made her more human, I guess, because again, they were done in the early seventies and I, and that, that myth of Plath hadn't really had time to kind of set in and maybe freeze people's memories or, um, and people, and, and Plath's friends, of course, oftentimes you know, by the time I got to them, they'd already given 50 interviews. Right. So, uh, that was another challenge just sort of trying to ask different questions and, and that sort of thing. So, um, so yeah, there was a real freshness to the, to those interview questions. You were able to interview some of these same people, right, who were interviewed by Rosenstein in the early 70s. Memory morphs and changes over time or solidifies even, right? Did you notice discrepancies between the interviewees then and now? You know, I was uh, very struck, actually, by just the opposite in, in certain people, um, Suzette Macedo and Elder Macedo told me almost exactly the same things that they told Harriet Rosenstein. I remember being shocked by how similar (laughs) a lot of the answers were. Jillian Becker, some of her, some of her recollections were different. Some of her answers were different. And these were her London friends. Yeah. London friends. Um, some of the Smith friends, like Nancy Hunter, um, some of her answers were different than uh, the stories that she told in her short memoir about Plath. Uh, so, yeah, so there were some discrepancies for sure. But and, I, and there were things like things that I had never known. Uh, Marsha Brown, one of Plath's um, close friends from from Smith, she uh, she adopted I think she adopted twins. And when Plath and Hughes were living in Boston, she she said, oh, yeah, Sylvia was over at my house all the time, helping me take care of the twins. And and I, and I had never known that. And um, again, just these sort of small details, but it really humanized her. And I thought, oh, OK, well, <laughs> and, and that Sylvia was was really trying to decide whether, you know, when she wanted to have children and, and they, she was kind of negotiating these ideas of motherhood with Marsha Brown, um, helping her with her, her two babies, that sort of thing. Um, but, but yeah, that, I had never read that in any other interview with Marsha Brown, that sort of, so, so, so there was some, yeah, quite new information there. As, as brief as Platt's life was, I mean, there were these different periods in her life, right? There's the, there's her childhood, her years at Smith College as a student, the phases in, in England. Um, do you have a favorite period in her life? I, I sort of enjoyed the different periods for different reasons. I enjoyed researching them almost equally, I would say. I, I, I really enjoyed the, the Massachusetts research, Boston. I'm, I'm originally from Massachusetts. So much of that was familiar to me. I mean... So when Plath was teaching at Smith College later, and then he lived in Boston, right? I taught for 10 years at Marlborough College, which is just up the road from Smith. And uh, so, and, and, you know, her love for Cape Cod is something that I really share. I'm actually from Cape Cod originally. So, you know, we had all these sort of geographical points in common. And, uh, and I, I, I enjoyed even researching about Aurelia and Otto in, in Jamaica Plain. And one of my grandmothers um, was born in Jamaica Plain. So that that was, I felt almost like I was reading about, learning about my gra- my own grandmother's era. And, uh, 
and then uh, of course I I enjoyed the um, the British research as well because I I had also been an American at Oxbridge and <laughs> so I, I enjoyed reading learning more about what Plath's own experience had been like in the 1950s as an American woman at Cambridge and uh, again there were these sort of very superficial points of uh, affinity I loved doing research up in Yorkshire um, I loved taking walks on the moors, you know, I would literally follow their footsteps out to Top Withens and uh, <laughs> Plath and Hughes used to walk out to this ruined farmhouse called Top Withens, which is the alleged uh, inspiration for Wuthering Heights. So um, whenever I was out, out in Heptonstall on Hebden Bridge in West Yorkshire, I would always try to take that hike. And so uh, I spent six weeks living in Ted Hughes's house in Mythamroyd and uh, doing research there. So I was really able to connect with that Yorkshire landscape in a, in a really immersive and significant way. I have to ask, too, you know, um, as you know, Platt scholars Gail Crowther and Peter K. Steinberg coined the term these ghostly mm, archives. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, Platt and Hughes both believed in mysticism. So in, in all of your research and, and being in, in the, the actual physical places where, where they were, did, did you have... Um, anything you might call a supernatural <laughs> experience? We always made jokes about it when I would, um, you know, I'm, I'm a professor at the University of Huddersfield and uh, that is the home of the Ted Hughes Network. So there, and the, there's the, the Element Trust and the Ted Hughes Society. There's a lot of um, sort of scholarly Hughes activity going on in, in that area of Yorkshire. So when, when I would meet people at talks, uh, they, they always, oh, is there a ghost? Did you, did you see the, you know, did you hear the ghost in Ted's house? So apparently there is this legend of um, <laughs> hauntings at Ted Hughes's house. I did not have any such experiences. Although, you know, I would, I would be out walking and I would see a fox, you know, or I'd see a hawk and I would sort of think, hmm. <laughs> of course, connects to his poetry. Yes, yes, the mm-hmm. thought box and, and the hawk in the rain. So I would see these wild animals and if my eyes would connect with the foxes, I would, I would sometimes have a moment of, hmm. <laughs> is this a sign of some sort? Um, and then, of course, I was able to, to go into uh, Sylvie Plath's last house. And there's a photograph in Red Comet of the view from her bedroom window. And this is, of course, the, the apartment in which she died, right? Yes. And and it's credited to you. So I was going to ask you about that. Yes. What was that like, being in that space? I wrote the owner of the house a letter. Um, you know, I knew I had been planning another research trip over to England, and she very generously gave me a tour of, of the house. Um, she didn't want me to take any photos, but I did ask if I could take a photo from the window, you know, looking out, not any part of her house. But and she, so she said yes, and uh, it was it was an extraordinary experience being in that space. And yeah, talk about the living archive. I mean, um, to to be in that room where she wrote some of her you know, finest poems. The the owner of the apartment did talk about some sort of semi-mystical experiences. I guess her her children used to make comments and they would sort of joke about Sylvia's ghost, but she said some of the comments were, were a bit uncanny. <laughs> well, I don't know if you know, but I, I it, you know, when Frida Hughes auctioned off a lot of her parents' um, objects, I was able to buy um, 
Sylvie Plath's table that was in that oh, apartment. Oh my goodness! So wow. I have that, and I was reading your book, and there, you you quote from an unpublished Ted Hughes poem where he mentions that table. And as I, I was, I, I and the table was right to my <laughs> left. I sort of reached out and touched it, and that was a very kind of supernatural moment for me. <laughs> yeah, you do have these sort of physical reactions, don't you? These almost yeah, these visceral moments when you're out of the out of the archive out of you know and in that that living archive right as as gail and peter say you know, i also wanted to ask you because in your prologue you mentioned coming across what was it a section from falcon yard yes um which is the unfinished um and presumably lost novel that she was working on yeah or, yeah and that that actually happened some time ago so that, that, was that an yeah that was my first uh stint researching for the grief of influence and uh and i i brought it to the attention of the archivist then and uh we were all very excited i didn't you know at the time i just thought oh this is really <laughs> quite interesting and uh i i quoted from it in the grief of influence um but I, I used it again, you know, it, it came in handy again also for this book. Yeah. And, and we might, you know, we'll probably find more bits and pieces of it. I mean, that's, that's why I, I always say, you know, there's no such thing as a definitive biography because m- more material I think will turn up and more questions will emerge. Right. I mean, there are always new ways to approach something, new questions that need to be answered, new material. So I just, I feel like biographies are always in, in dialogue with each other, what came before, what's going to come next. Um, Were there any mysteries that remained for you after you finished the book? I mean, you cover her whole life, right? But was there anything outstanding that you wish you could have learned about her? I think learning about that, the sort of last couple weeks and just, and, you know, the information about where she was, where the doctor wanted to admit her and that kind of thing. That was something I really, really wanted to know. And, um, and so when, when I read about that in the the Rosenstein files, uh, I, I did feel like it was a, it was a big piece of the puzzle then it came to you at the end, right, yeah. as a kind of gift. Yeah, at the, at the very end. I wanted to know more concrete details about uh, the, some of her procedures at McLean and Valley Head and, you know, how many shock treatments she'd had. And and, uh, and those medical records were in the archive, right? They, I mean, they were, like there, were there was an, an interview with Boisher, and she was, you know, just very, you know, she talked a lot about some of the the treatments and and also uh when i went to mclean the archivist there had gone into a lot of detail about what kinds of treatments patients were receiving in the 1950s and when thorazine came out and um exactly you know where what the progression would have been of a patient coming you know from who would be put in x building and then when once when they got better they'd be moved to y building you know that sort of thing and he he gave me uh access to some of the mclean newsletters from the 1950s and that also helped me put that medical treatment in in context in all of your research and your 10 years right yeah. of, of time with with sylvia plath's life did you ever come did you come across anything that led you to believe that her missing last journals might still exist? 
Uh, yeah, that's actually the, if, I mean, I would love to, to see those right. And the lost novel, um, yeah, right. those, those are probably the two, the two things that I would, <laughs> you and me both, right. Everybody would right, love to see right. those. I mean, Ted Hughes wrote, I think there's an unsent letter to Jacqueline Rose, at Emory saying, well, actually I, I didn't burn them. <laughs> um, right. He never destroyed anything. Yeah. Like yeah. So it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to know. Um, I know people have their suspicions about where things might be. Right. And I have some suspicions, I, but I just don't know. And um, well, for a long time at, at Emory, there were in the Hughes archive, there was that black box, yes. right? That was sealed, and there was a lot of speculation, like, are the missing journals yeah. in that box? But then we, I think it's been decided that they're not there, you know? Yeah, and, and we know that Asia Wevel read part of the novel, um, Olwyn Hughes read part of it. So, you know, it did exist for, for some time, um, but, yeah, we don't know quite what happened to it. I think it might turn up. I do too, and I don't know if that's because I really want it to. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, I do have hopes that it that it will turn up yeah. um, while I'm still living. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so. Yeah, and I don't. I mean, I don't know. So Sylvia Plath's brother Warren uh, Plath lives in the same town that I do, um, which is a coincidence. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, and and he didn't. You know, he didn't want to discuss anything. I, I I approached him and asked if. He wanted to be interviewed, but he didn't want to. And I completely respect that. And I know I, I just asked once I was not going <laughs> to badger him about right. it. Um, this was a whole new world for me, right? Writing a biography. I had only written literary criticism before. So, uh, so the, the exhaustive nature of the research was, uh, it was a bit shocking. I mean, <laughs> and I, I felt like, okay, if I'm going to write this thorough biography of Plath that tries to treat her as, uh, as Hermione Lee has said, a professional writer first, Hermione mm-hmm. Lee has said that women who offer suffer, who often suffer from uh, mental illness or suicide, she says are often treated as psychological case histories first and professional writers second. And so that quote was really inspiring to me. And I, I tried, so I hope, I hope that <laughs> I really wanted to treat Plath as a professional writer first. And um, so, yeah, telling that story, it was it was just exhaustive uh, research. And figuring out what not to include turned out to be the hardest part of it. Because wow. as you say, David, she she left behind a massive paper trail. And we could almost reconstruct what she was doing on almost every day of her life. <laughs> Down to what she was eating, yeah. right? Meals. And, yeah. 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 Really fascinating how, um, how deep you can go into her, her daily experiences. Absolutely. You know? And the juvenilia too. Um, I mean, I know some people are sort of like, well, why do we need to read Sylvia Plath's poems from when she was eight years old? And my response is like, of course we need to read Sylvia Plath's poems from when she was eight years old, because that's when she she started writing. I mean, she had this calling. She had a literary vocation. And, uh, and you know, I, I wanted to show that progression. And she's almost a prodigy. I mean, I might, I might almost use that word to describe her. She's writing in perfect iambic trimeter when she's like nine years old you know she understood rhyme and meter and all of that 
And so, um, so yeah, I just, again, it was all part of telling the, a full story. I, I think you were totally successful in, in the goal of, you know, portraying her as an artist and an, an intellectual and also as a proto-feminist, right? Which, which I believe she yeah. was. As well. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because she's such a feminist icon, right? And, uh, and that's sort of how I came to Sylvia Plath, I guess. And even before I read her work, I, I guess I knew her as, um, as this feminist icon, uh, when I was in high school, uh, even college, but so, so it was really shocking to, to be reading her letters or what have you, and, and then hear her comment on, um, oh, I never want to be one of these ghastly career women, <laughs> you know, because of, but of course she's, she's writing in the age before second wave feminism. So, um, she hasn't even really had the chance to, to consider, um, a, a different way. And, and I'm reading the Adrian Rich biography right now, actually. And, uh, I'm really struck by how similar Plath and Rich were uh, in their marriages as as wives, and that they they didn't really challenge the the traditional you know roles in in the 1950s. I mean, they both put their husband's work first. You know, they both took on the bulk of of homemaking and child rearing, and and then and then second wave feminism comes along, and Rich is like, okay, I'm done with that. <laughs> you know, she says, I was sleepwalking. So I do wonder if if Plath had lived longer, you know, would would she have kind of followed in Adrian Rich's footsteps? Would she have become more involved in the women's movement? I mean, you asked me actually, you asked me before, what what do you, is there something you want to know? I really want to know that. I I mean, and we can never know, but I wonder. Right. I do wonder. Well, no, and you know, from what I've read of Adrian Rich, um, at least later in her later years, um, she spoke bitterly about motherhood. Yeah. And you know, Plath, um, from in all her all of her writing, I mean, she she seems to want to have children and loves her children. And I don't know, it's, it sort of seems impossible to imagine her looking back later and resenting it, but who knows, you know, especially after the breakup of the marriage. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and that was, that was one, that was another sort of unexpected point of affinity for me was reading Plas letters and, and journal entries about how hard it was to find time to work, right? Especially when when the marriage broke up and and she didn't really have help with the kids and uh, she really suffered. She really suffered and she didn't have a lot of time. And I think I think she she needed to write every day in order to kind of feel mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know feel good. And and she didn't get that time to write because she she was always looking after two small children. Um, and it was funny cause there was one part of the, of the book where I, my kids were almost like the same age that <laughs> Plath's children were, um, towards the end. So I, I was just like, oh, I get you, you know, <laughs> I'd have these real meta moments where I'd feel like, okay, I'm a mother trying to find time to write about a mother who's trying to find time to write. And it, it just, I, in those moments, I felt like. I had so much sympathy for her and, and just, yeah, how much she, she suffered. Um, and I think that was part of the, her rage too, right? Because so much of, of the marriage was devoted to fostering Hughes's career. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, and yeah. She comes into her own and, um, 
she's having to struggle with, you know, with lack of time and resources. Yeah. And she doesn't, and she doesn't have, you know, I mean, at least when, when, for the good years of the marriage, he, he did give her the, you know, the four or five Mm -hmm. hours in the morning to write. And she had that. And, you know, she would say, Oh, uh, after I've had my morning, I can do anything. You know, after I have my morning to write, I can face the world. And she didn't even have that anymore. So after the marriage broke up. So, um, yeah, I think, I think there, and there was, there was a sense of, Oh, of regret for, you know, being, being the agent, being the secretary, putting so much time in and, um, yeah. And do you see that And uh, part of it is, is it was easier to do it for him because he was male. Yes. Yes. Right. Whereas it was harder for her to do that for herself. Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, again, I'm, I'm bringing up Adrian Rich and, this comparison is sort of fresh in my mind right now, just because I'm reading the biography. But I think for too long, Plath was sort of accused of, of being apolitical, non-political, and, and especially if you compare her to someone like Rich. But, you know, I think just, just writing itself was a political act for Plath when, um, you know, she, she, she was being pressured. Um, there was enormous societal pressure to, to not write, you know, to tend to her husband and her children. And again, to make herself small and, and to not, um, you know, honor that voice. And so I think in 19, in the 1950s, early 1960s, just, just the act of writing itself, I think for Plath, that was, to me, that's a, that's a political act. I mean, she, she wasn't out there running political committees, right? Like Adrian Rich, but I, I still think, you know, and of course, Robin Peel's book writing back Sylvia Plath and Cold War politics I think I think now now we're very we're we're well aware that she was actually a, a political person right the power of her of her of her voice in the aerial poems right in that eruption yeah you know and, and I've often thought you know my, what I would like to to see is if she had lived um the impact mm. of that work you know I, I think of Allen Ginsberg's Howl or other or the other works that have sort of um, been a kind of disturbance in the culture, right? That's a good way, really and, good way to put it. I like that, a disturbance, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's, in a way, her aerial poems are are a disturbance in the culture. And, um, yeah, it's so interesting drawing a line from a poem like Howl to some of the aerial poems. I'm actually very intrigued by the connections between beat poetry and, quote-unquote, confessional poetry, and um, I know I know Plath and Hughes kind of talk trash about some of the beat poets. <laughs> they were they um, they weren't too impressed with them, at least in in letters and journal entries and that kind of thing. But I, I think actually Plath got more out of them than than she let on. Yeah. Yes, and you know I've always a detail I've always loved is when she edited that little sampling of American poetry. Um, I think in 1960 or thereabout. Yeah. She, in her note, introductory note, she says that she wanted to include a poem by Gregory Corso, but was unable to get permission. And I just love that she wanted to include one of his poems. You know, it shows um, um, her range, I think, and her taste. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think she was sort of more intrigued, at least intrigued by the beats than (laughs) and she let on. I think Johnny Panic and the Bible of Dreams is such a beat story i feel like it has a really beat sensibility but 
Yeah. Topic for another day, I guess. <laughs> my next book. <laughs> well, yeah. well, and that, that leads me to my final question, which is, um, will you continue to research and write about Plath or have you had your fill? I definitely want to take a break. I, I do feel kind of exhausted. Um, <laughs> just, I, I kind I just want to, I think I want to read, I want to start researching other writers, but I, I know that those will bring me back to Plath as well. And, and kind of maybe looking at her from different angles than I, I've been able to, or, uh, yeah, my next book is going to be about Plath and Sexton, Adrian Rich and Maxine Cumin in Boston in the fifties and sixties and maybe even early seventies. But I want to, it's sort of a group biography, but I want to look at this idea of confessionalism and look at Boston as a, as a place where, um, you know, we sort of witness the dawn of confessionalism, uh, as well as the dawn of feminism and how those two things kind of intersect with these four women poets and how they, um, and and how I think they they start to popularize some of these ideas and get them out into out into the mainstream culture. So, well, that sounds wonderful. I look forward to that. Thank you. I look forward to researching more about them. <laughs> well, I'm I'm really happy to have had the opportunity to talk with you, Heather. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. I, I'm really uh, I enjoy talking about research and and Plath, of course. So yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity and thanks to Emery. I hope I can get back there soon. Community Conversations is produced by Loli Turo and Nick Twimlow. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library. Jennifer King, director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to David Trinidad and Heather Clark. Join us next month for a conversation between our own Nick Twimlow and scholar Nick Sturm as they explore the history and scope of the Raymond Donowski Poetry Library housed at Rose Library.